Well, good morning, Eastview. It's good to be with you all, uh, to those in the room, to those who are watching online, to the Bloomington campus. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to be in the house of the Lord. Is it not this morning? Yeah. Uh, good job. You, you survived. I mean, the last time that I got up, we had recently survived some weird slush storm. You survived hail last night. If you slept through it, that's good. It's good for you. We had extra kids in our bed last night um, because of that. But I, before I get to the word this morning, I, I do have something that I want to just personally express to the congregation. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Ben Miller. My wife, Joe, and I, uh, we do campus ministry with a group called Encounter. We've been doing campus ministry for 25 years. I love college students, and there are a lot of them in this town, 27, 28,000 college students in Bloomington Normal, and care deeply about them coming to find Jesus and follow him forever. Like that, that is our heartbeat and our mission. And you may not know this, um, but for the past couple of years, we've been praying as a staff and our board of directors um, God, how do, we, how do we do a bunch of different things? How do we increase your influence on campus? How do we meet unchurched students in new ways? How do we, um, one of the big ones is, how do we release mature men and women of faith, not just entertain college students on the name of Jesus, but how do we, how do we disciple, mentor, and release mature men and women of faith into the church, your future pastors and elders and deacons and leaders and workers as a body of Christ. And a big one on campus right now is mental health. There's a mental health crisis on campus. Um, Students who are struggling with anxiety and depression and OCD and eating disorders and self-harm and addictions, addictions, friends. Uh, We see it all the time. And so we have been praying for those things. How do we help students who are in crisis as we see this more and more often? There are a lot of people in Bloomington Normal who love Jesus. And we're constantly making referrals to counselors. So we've been praying through all of this stuff for two years. How do we do this and lean into this in ways that might change the campus for the next 50 years and how Jesus is pressed deep into our campus in town? And so here's what's crazy. As we were praying through that, I came to the exec team uh, at the church here and said, hey, we're praying hard through these vision and values. I don't know where God's taking us, but he's doing something right now. And Tyler said, well, that's interesting. Because on our side, we've been developing this thing called Love McLean County, and we have been praying that for Encounter. We actually wrote down on a piece of paper that we want to figure out ways to help you double your influence in the coming years. I was like, wait, what? We should talk more. Um, you guys, it is amazing how many coincidences happen when we pray, right? <laughs> You're like, wow, these things seem to be lining up. One of the biggest problems with all those dreams is we do not have money or the space to do all of those things. And 11 months ago, God opened this, this door that seemed like a crazy long shot for us to have a different space really right in the center of campus. And we started praying that direction. And unbeknownst to you, part of your extended ministry, expanding ministry offering at the end of the year last year came to our ministry. And we didn't expect that. We didn't know that that was coming. But that, and then randomly, these these coincidences that happen when you pray, not only did that happen, but a community donor who wants to stay anonymous stepped forward and said, I'll match Eastview's gift personally. Um, Yeah, crazy. And so in June, we're transitioning to this new space that that we do not have the, (laughs) we, we certainly do not have the means 
to move into, and we're still praying. So like part of that is just a huge thank you to you as a congregation, because as Tyler mentioned earlier, you may not know where that generosity is always flowing to. This will change how we do ministry on campus for the next 50, 60 years, like long after I have anything to do with it. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. And for you prayer warriors in the room, keep praying. Because now we have to figure out, as God continues to answer some of these prayers, uh, we want to lean in harder to what he's calling us to do. But I, I want you to hear what God is doing, because otherwise it robs him of the praise that he deserves. So if you want to know more about that, I could easily have filled my entire space today talking about it, because it has been a journey. Um, but I want to get to our text. I want to get to our text. And I have a question to start us off this morning that's an important one. Okay, it's an incredibly important one. As a matter of fact, if I knew the answer to this question about you, I could tell whether or not you would make a good spouse. You know, if a fiance came to me and said, hey, should I really marry this person? If I could get the honest answer to this one question, I think I could answer it. Or if you said, hey, I have this great business idea and I want to go into business with this partner, but I don't know if I can trust him. If I could get the honest answer to this one question, I could answer it, I think. I could learn a lot about you, a ton about you. You want to know what the question is? No, not really? Okay, we'll just keep moving. No, but here's the other thing about this question. You probably can't honestly answer it about yourself. If I asked me this question, you're probably going to have to go to my wife and ask her to get the right answer because I will respond with what I want you to hear as opposed to what's true. The question, my friends, is what makes you mad? What makes you angry? Makes you flip your lid, hot under the collar, red with rage, puts a chip on your shoulder, sends you through the roof. There are a million idioms in our language to ask that question, but they all get back to the same thing. What makes you mad? Makes you angry? Because your anger is a window into your priorities. Now that's why I say I might be better off if you ask me that question, I might have to defer to my wife. Because I am going to answer what I think I should be angry about. And she will tell you the actual truth of the stuff that really does make me angry. Now, I know it's a sensitive topic, too. Because, again, it does. It opens a window straight into our soul over what I prioritize. But anger helps me understand how you are wired. And whether that your priorities are selfish or selfless, the causes that you truly care about, it reveals something about us. Now, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be in the book of John as a congregation um, is because the Gospels, and if you aren't super familiar with the Bible, there are four different Gospels in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we think of those as eyewitness accounts. So these are the people who were up close with Jesus who understood who he was, and they have written these accounts so that we might learn more about him and his ministry and who he was and what he was doing. And so John was one of his disciples, one of his close, close people. Now, we believe that Jesus is God. You hear me? And so therefore, when we see Jesus walk around and do things, like I've heard a lot of students through the years say, I just wish that God was more... I don't know, he's so ethereal and out there and I can't see him and touch him. I can't experience him. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I've said it before. He is the 3D printed God right in front of us. That's who Jesus is. That's that's good theology. And so when we see him in conversation, 
His priorities are the Father's priorities. What makes him happy is what makes the Father happy. When we see him confront things, it's the Father confronting things. They don't have two separate moralities or truths that they operate within. Jesus and the Father are the same. And what we see in the Gospel of John, I mean, and throughout all of Scripture, is that God is an emotional God. Let that sink in for just a second. Because some of you might, might be like, wait, what? Because in our words, in our world, in our culture, sometimes when we use the word emotional, we mean irrational. Like, oh, that person's just acting emotionally. They just made an emotional decision. And we dismiss that. Friends, everything that you do is emotional. Our emotions are baked into who we are. I, I believe that a significant number of them can't come from the Father because we're made in his image. And so in 1 John 4, 8, as well as a lot of other scripture, he's the God of love. Proverbs 6, 16, God hates. That's an emotion that he feels. Usually in scripture, when it talks about God's hate, it talks about him hating evil, that he hates brokenness and decay and pain. Exodus 20, he's a jealous God. Zephaniah 3.17, he feels joy. Genesis 6, he feels grief and pain. Psalm 135, he feels compassion. Hebrews 4.15, he sympathizes and empathizes with us. These are things that God can do. And in John 2, where we'll be at today, he gets angry. What's that look like? What does it look like for the God of the universe to show his anger? Well, let's look. Let's look at the text together. We're going to be in John 2, starting in uh, verse 12. And I'm, on the front end of this, I'm going to interrupt the text a little bit. So I'm just going to warn you about that in advance. Let's read together. After this interruption, the this is last week. If you were here, we talked about the miracle in Cana of him turning water into wine. So that's, that's the beautiful thing about us reading John through verse by verse here is that we get a sequence of events. So after he turned the water into wine, he went down to Capernaum. Let me interrupt again, okay? When we see down and up in scripture, it's not talking about north, south, east, west. Uh, I say, we, you know, you go sort of like down to Tennessee or up to Chicago. That's not what they're talking about here. When he says he went down to Capernaum, he's actually going west, but he's going to lose a thousand feet in elevation loss. Remember, this is a very mountainous area. So you're literally going down a thousand feet. You're moving west, but going down. Um, so he goes down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Same language, but so up in this is actually south. <laughs> he's going south, but he's gaining 3,200 feet of elevation gain along the way. So south, but uphill to Jerusalem. Now, a little tidbit here, again, just to interrupt the text. It says that the Passover of the Jews is at hand. John, you're going to notice as we go through his book, gives us some time markers for Jesus's ministry. And he uses the Passovers to do it. That was a yearly celebration, a feast that the Jews had. So one of them is here at the beginning of his ministry. We'll see another one in John 6, 4, at the feeding of the 5,000. He goes out of his way to mention the Passover again. And then in John 11, we see the Passover a third time. And that's going to be the holy week where Jesus is killed. Okay, so we get these time markers. I'll stop interrupting now. We can get to our story. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. 
Don't miss that little piece right there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your written word speaks, it convicts, Uh, most importantly, it points us toward the living word. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would be welcome to convict, to encourage, to do the things that your church needs this morning. Be free to move in this space for everyone within the sound of my voice, Jesus. And we pray this in your name, Christ, and through your sacrifice. Amen. Okay, I have some questions. I have some questions about our text. One, when did this happen? Because John seems to be very clear this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I don't want to get hung up on this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all also talk about a moment that looks very similar to this, of Jesus turning tables in the temple. They are all very clear that this happened at the end, during Holy Week, at the end of Jesus' ministry. So in doing research on this, what I found is that most scholars believe that he probably did this twice. He did this at the beginning with a whip. John's details are slightly different than the others. And he also did this at the end of his ministry. But regardless of the when, even if you say, well, I'm not, I'm, that doesn't solve that problem necessarily for me. We absolutely, the, the if is solved. It happened because all four gospel writers go out of their way to talk about it. So there's no uncertainty on whether this happened. The only question in my mind is whether it happened twice. Did Jesus do this once at the beginning and once at the end? Question two that I have, what's with all the animals? Is this petting zoo Sunday at church? Because some of you may not be familiar. I mean, two years ago, we did a a series on the tabernacle, but I want to help clarify this a little bit so we're all on the same page biblically. Back in the time of Moses and the law, when God gave the law through Moses, The tabernacle was the system that God gave them to worship within. He was very specific about how he wanted them to worship. Okay, so they built this this tent um, that became their church, their center of worship. And when you entered, the very first thing that you encountered when you entered the tabernacle was the altar of sacrifice. Now, God set up for the Hebrew people from the very beginning this idea that your sin has a cost and that cost has to be paid for. And in the Old Testament system of worship, excuse me, in the Old Testament system of worship, that was born by an animal, which is very foreign to us. It was not foreign to them. So when you came to the temple, a sacrifice came with you, an animal came with you, and it was the first thing that you saw when you entered the tabernacle. And that was, it could be as large as an ox or as small as a pigeon depending on how wealthy you were or depending on the kind of sin you're atoning for. If this really floats your boat, you're like, I want to know more. Leviticus 1 through 5 are your homework for the week, okay? You can, di- you can do the deep dive on how those sacrifices worked. Now, 
When the tabernacle became the temple during Solomon's time, that looked different, but the structure was loosely the same. This was a permanent building instead of a tent. And then that, build, that temple was destroyed. And then later on, after the, the Jewish people came back, after they were exiled, another temple was built. And then just before Jesus' time, Herod expanded that temple even more. But they were all built off that same model of one of your first acts of worship was animal sacrifice. So here's what happened. Here's how that evolved. At first, you brought your own animal. Well, then they realized for people who are traveling long distances, it's not that easy to bring pigeons from nine days away if you're traveling, okay? So people started selling them outside the temple. And you could go and you could buy the sacrifice that you needed to offer in the temple. Well, then they moved some of that stuff inside the temple, into the, what they called the outer courts, some of the places where the Gentiles especially would be. Well, then what started to happen was people were like, you know, people are sort of over a barrel here. They have to have these sacrifices to worship. So we can actually start charging some extra money, financial opportunity. So they start gouging prices. And then they start gouging prices a little bit more. And then they start gouging prices a little bit more. And so they're taking, like the, you guys, the temple or the tabernacle were intended to be a place where we were all on the same level in front of God. There's a path to God. And you could come there if you were poor. There were spaces if you were a Gentile. Like this idea that there was a path to connect with God and what Jesus walks into into this space is people who are financially taking advantage of the vulnerable, the poor, and the chaos of oxen, sheep, (laughs) pigeons, everything in what's supposed to be a house of prayer. That's why the animals. It's not petting zoo Sunday, okay? Third question I have about this text. Jesus whipped people? Jesus whipped people. Well, no. I mean, yes, but no. (laughs) Did he make a whip? Yes, the text says yes. But he would have been arrested if he was walking around bloodying the backs of people. We don't see him arrested in this text. So what we get from the context clues here are that did Jesus make a scene? Yes, he did, absolutely. Was that a violent scene? No, I don't believe so. We don't have any evidence here of that. My last question for this text is, why wasn't he stopped? I mean, we've got the temple workers and the priests. The temple has lots of people who work there. Why does nobody stop him? I'm going to make an educated guess on this one, so take it for what it's worth, but I think it's important. I don't think anybody stops him because I think everybody there knows what's going on is wrong but nobody has put a stop to it. I think the people who are doing it know that it's wrong. I think the temple workers who are allowing it know that it's wrong. I think that it is just this sin that has been allowed to evolve, has gotten to a point where everybody knows that it's happening. And that's why nobody can stop Jesus when he starts doing it, because it's gonna be terrible PR for anyone to walk in and be like, no, not on my watch. I'm going to defend this. Nobody can defend it. And so there is nobody to stop what Jesus is doing because they all recognize that what is happening in the temple is not the purpose of the temple. Now, I have been to a lot of churches in my time, and you walk in and it's not unusual for there to be a picture of Jesus on the wall. And I have seen Jesus looking serenely off in the distance, long flowing hair. I've seen Jesus holding lambs and sheep. I've seen Jesus with children on his lap, smiling and laughing. I have never seen this picture, never seen him with a whip, oxen running like mad from him, never seen it in my life. And so 
I'm going to ask you to be confronted this morning with the idea that our God righteously can get angry. That we live in an angry culture, but perhaps we're angry about some of the wrong things. And anger, my friends, I want you to hear this metaphor this morning. I'd like this to stick in your minds. Anger is a fire. Anger is a fire. Now, when I, I don't know exactly what age, I think late grade school, uh, maybe, maybe early junior high. Uh, I'm going to confess to this this morning. First, there was the whole parakeet on Easter thing, and now I got one more for you this morning, okay? Um, my, my grandparents and relatives own property that kind of sits, uh, if you're driving toward East Peoria, Peoria, um, it's kind of off on the right-hand side before you hit East Peoria, kind of like out in sort of the country area there. There's some farmland and some other stuff that my family had owned for a very long time. And so when I grew up, if I would go to my grandma's house, we would go out in their pasture and we would, we would I mean, like me and my cousins would just sort of be messing around out there. Sometimes we'd go all the way out to the highway because the property was against that. There were these giant culverts out there. I mean, like far bigger than I was. You could stand up and run through them. And so sometimes we would go out and play underneath I-74. Of course, the parents didn't know this was happening. So there's some confession here that goes along with that. But on one particular day, we had, uh, we had some like random bottle rockets and firecrackers. And so we thought we should probably go out to the highway uh, while the rest of the adults are doing their thing. And so, and we're sitting, and I have to say, it's a pretty glorious noise when you can get a firecracker to go off in like an eight-foot culvert. It's, it's an experience. And so that's what we were doing. We were just goofing off there and we're messing around. And I, I, I don't remember exactly all of the details, but I will tell you that I was not the one who lit the match, okay? I will tell you this much. Because my cousin lit a firecracker and tossed it down into the little bit of water that was coming out of the culvert, and he missed, and it hit the weeds that were right there. And those little bit of weeds caught on fire, which wouldn't have been a giant deal since it was next to a creek if the weeds there weren't about seven feet tall and if it wasn't like a 30-mile-an-hour just sustained wind that day, okay? So my little late grade school, early junior high self just watches that little firecracker become a wall of flame, and that wall just take off along I-74 on the way to Peoria, okay? And we're both shocked. This happened so fast, and we had no idea what to do. And so we're like, I mean, like at first, we're, we're taking handfuls of water and like trying to, which is ridiculous. And so, I mean, I, I ended up burning my hands and my arms trying to stop some of this stuff. There was no stopping it. And the number of fire trucks and police cars that ended up on the scene of this, more than I can count on both hands. Let me put it this way. This is the only time in my life I've been returned home in the back of a police car, which was the first, th like, that was the first awareness that, that my parents had that anything was going on at all. <laughs> Okay? No houses were burned. Just, a, just about a mile-long stretch of I-74 was charred, and traffic had to move at about 10 miles an hour because there was so much smoke blowing over the highway. Um, I have a deep respect for fire, okay? And anger is that. Anger is that. Anger is a fire that burns hot in us. And I love a fire in our fireplace. It's one of my favorite things of winter. We have a fireplace when we have those cold snaps. I love to turn that fireplace on. But that's the only place in our house that fire is really all that great. It becomes devastating and damaging when it is out of that spot. So I want to ask you this morning, how do we hold anger? How do we hold it? How, is, how does it stay in the fireplace? 
Because I don't think anger is all broken. A perfect God experiences righteous anger, but how do we deal with that? Well, first, let's look at how he deals with that. We understand that he's perfect, that God can't be tempted by sin, nor does he tempt. That's James 1. Proverbs 6 tells us that he hates these kinds of things. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who sows discord in a family. Why does God hate those things? Why does his anger burn against those things? You guys, it should. It sounds weird for me to say this morning that we want an angry God, but we do. How would you feel if God was indifferent toward those things? How would you feel if the God of the universe saw pain and suffering If he could watch a child suffer and feel indifferent, would he be good? He wouldn't. There's an old quote that sits out there that says, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. We have a God who hates the right things at the right times in the right ways. And that is what we call perfect anger, righteous anger. Difficult for us to hold, but not for him. Again, if you want homework, read Matthew 23. Jesus' anger flares against the religious leaders who, instead of helping people, are hurting people. Instead of creating a path to God, they're putting roadblocks in people's way. And Jesus will not tolerate it. We see his anger flare in that moment. Now, sometimes in this, about this passage, regarding this passage, I hear people talk about the culture, and they say, ah, if Jesus was around in our culture today, he'd be flipping some tables, he'd be making a whip. Let's talk about that. Perhaps you may not remember that Jesus lived during the golden age of the Greeks and the Romans. The Greeks, perhaps, which, was, which came before, just before the Roman Empire in, this, in terms of the golden age, but their influence is still felt in this space for sure. The, in terms of sexuality, our culture ain't got nothing on the Greeks, you all. I mean, in Corinth, Paul will be talking to the church in Corinth. After, I mean, this is after Jesus' time. Paul will be talking to the church in Corinth. The Greek goddess Aphrodite was still worshipped in Corinth at that time. There were 1,200 temple prostitutes at that temple in Corinth alone. Like, the, what Jesus walked around in in terms of culture of sexuality was unbelievably liberal. Well, let's talk about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was unbelievably brutal and corrupt. I mean, when we're talking about Caesar, when Jesus is answering questions about taxes, we're talking about a group of people who put people's heads on pikes and their hands on pikes when you walked into a town to remind you that that town was under the control of the Roman Empire. When Jesus is talking about paying taxes to Caesar, he's talking about buying the cross that he'll eventually be crucified on, okay? You you could not travel back in time and complain about J.B. Pritzker to a Roman citizen. You couldn't do it. They'd be like, that doesn't sound like oppression to me, okay? And so we have these ideas today of Jesus would be so angry with our culture. I want you to understand, he walked around in the brutal oppression of the Roman Empire with the crazy sexuality of the Greeks. And yet the stuff that we see him get angry about time after time after time is how his followers behave in the name of the Father representing him. I think sometimes we believe, we just like to believe that Jesus would flip other people's tables. 
we're super comfortable with that. Yeah, Jesus, get out in the culture and flip some tables. And he's actually, he says, ah, I have to think if Jesus were here, it'd be some of our tables he'd be flipping. Some of the things that we have allowed into the outer courts of our own personal lives, some of the decisions that we have made that put obstacles in front of other people. So God perfectly can hold that anger. How do we do it? How do we do it? Well, this is confusing in scripture, I got to tell you. Paul gives us instructions. Let me put the bottom one first. I'm going to tackle that one first. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Several verses in the New Testament that use that language. Put it away. Put your anger away. Cast it away. Take it off. Lots of verses that talk about that. And yet, look at the top verse. Just four verses ahead of that, Paul will say, be angry and don't sin. So which is it, Paul? Do I be angry and not sin, or do I put it away? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What Paul knows, friends, is that anger by itself is not bad. It is not evil, but it is a fire that can get out of control in ways that you do not understand and that you cannot predict. It takes us to places. It is a motive that is really, really difficult for us to, to corral without it being corrupted. Something that we think that we're in control of that suddenly is in control of us. So I, very quickly this morning, I wanna move through four questions that I believe come out of some different scriptures that help us hold anger. And I, I'm going to ask you to lean into that in a different space this week that isn't here. Come back to these four questions and say, God, is the anger that sits in my world submitted to you? There's a, a crazy story. Some of you know uh, Madame Curie, who's a, a chemist and physicist in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. She worked with uh, radioactivity. She actually coined the term. We didn't have the term radioactivity. She just realized that there was these different elements and isotopes that behaved completely differently than other things. So she named polonium and she named radium. Absolutely brilliant. But she didn't know anything about radiation poisoning or anything else. She carried radioactive isotopes around in her pocket and remarked in her journals about how they would glow when there wasn't any light. Huh. If you go, I mean, you can't, but if you, if you wanted to go and review her journals today, today they're stored in lead boxes and you would have to wear protective gear to flip through the pages of the stuff that she wrote on, okay? She was discovering unbelievable things without understanding how powerful they were. This is the kind of fire that I'm talking about with anger this morning. Some of us are walking around with fire, just ready to start them everywhere that we go with radioactive isotopes in our pocket, not understanding the damage that they're doing while we're carrying them. Here are the four questions we walk through. One, is my anger submitted to the Lord? Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and I examine the mind. A reminder to you that anger is a window into our priorities, what we deeply care about. So is that submitted to God? Does he have a voice in what I think I should be getting angry about? Are there causes that he needs to speak into? Or is it just a moment of anger? Is this a fit of rage that Paul would talk about in Galatians 5? Does God have a voice in that? Question two, can I delay acting or speaking? 
Proverbs 14, 17, the quick-tempered act foolishly. Anger wants to take control of the steering wheel and drive us off the cliff. I mean, it leads us to those Clark Griswold moments, right? Where the, the, the lights don't work and the family's melting down and you just absolutely get to the place where you are about to throw a tantrum. Do I have the ability to slow and delay acting or speaking? I know it's odd in this moment, in this passage that we're talking about this morning. Jesus does not, he, he does not fly off the handle. This is a measured, controlled, specific response. Did you notice that he sat down and made a whip? I am fascinated. How long, how many whips has he made? How long did this take? I mean, it took some time. Did the disciples even understand what he's doing? Like, are they talking with each other? Is Jesus making a whip? I think he's making a whip. What's he going to do with the whip? It's like, Peter, run. <laughs> Jesus is making a whip. He took time in this moment. He sat down. Listen, I have watched people in Walmart lose their minds. Road rage, you have seen it. Last time I was in Home Depot, I, I should have videotaped, okay? I should have videotaped what I witnessed in there between a poor customer service representative and someone who had very strong opinions, okay? If you are the kind of person who lets anger control you, I'm throwing the challenge flag and I'm asking you, can you submit your anger to the Lord? Ask your kids, your wife, your parents to help speak into that for you of what it means to delay acting or speaking. Now, also heed Paul's warning, don't let the sun go down in your anger. But again, that's the idea of, is this submitted? Is this something that God can work with? Third, ask the question, what am I fighting for? I mean, in this passage, they remember that it's fulfilling uh, the prophecy, zeal for your house will consume me. We're talking not just about what Jesus is standing up against. We're talking about what he's fighting for. He's fighting for his house to be a place of prayer, a lack of distraction, and a place where people are not being taken advantage of. That's what he's fighting for, not against. It's nothing against the oxen or the pigeons. That's not his battle. I would say in the church, you friends, the world knows plenty what we're fighting against. Matter of fact, sometimes I think that's all they've heard. What are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? What causes are we leaning into? I mean, I, I was here this past week in the church and I was watching people talk to in the food pantry. I was watching people talk to, pray with, and work with people from our community who desperately need help, struggling with food scarcity. I have to think there's a little bit of anger that sits in them over the injustices that sit in our town. It is not, it is driving them to do work for those people. And I hope a little bit of that anger is okay. They should feel it when they see the injustice that sits there and people who aren't doing well to say, how do I fight for them? Chad Parker, one of our elders, years ago, he started, uh, um, he started a ministry called Goya because he went to the slums of Matumba, Kenya, and he saw people struggling to survive on these giant trash heaps. And I have to think there's some anger burning in his soul to be like, this is wrong. But what does he do? Pitch a fit? Just write a strongly worded Facebook message? Wish everybody would do this. And then log off the keyboard and be like, look at the difference that I've made in the world. No, he came and start, he started an organization. He raised money. He started fighting for something, not just against the things that were wrong, but what needed to be fought for there. What are we fighting for? 
friends, not just against. And the last one, are others allowed to speak into my anger? Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in their own eyes, but the wise listen to counsel. If my wife does not have a voice into my anger, that's a problem. If my wise mentors do not have a voice into my anger, that's a problem. The fire belongs in the fireplace. So church, hear me. If you cannot submit your anger to God, if you can't, if you can't delay acting on your anger, if you don't understand what you're fighting for as opposed to against, if you cannot give others a voice in your anger, then you are not on the throne. (laughs) You've not put God on the throne of your life. Anger is on that throne. It is the thing that is driving your decisions. And what I want us to understand as a church, it's interesting, as I've been praying for this morning, one of the things that I've been praying for is that God would make us angrier about the right things at the right times in the right ways. Because I think we've taken anger as a very selfish, petty, impatient, self-contained thing in our families, in our culture, and followers of Jesus. I want there to be a fire in your bones. I don't want apathy to be the thing that drives you. I don't want you to mistake kindness and impotence. They're not the same thing. Our heavenly father is powerful and he gets angry at injustice. And he knows what he's fighting for. The very end of our passage, the very end of our passage, Jesus talks about, they, the, the Jews are not happy with what he does in the temple, and they, but they can't really stop him from doing it. So they say, what sign do you give us? And if you remember, he says, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Now, they don't know what he's talking about. They think he's actually talking physically about the temple, and so they're incredulous about that. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his own body laid down for us, broken for us. You carry brokenness and sin in you. And I need you to understand, God's anger burns against brokenness and sin. So what did he do? Did he set himself against you? Did he let his anger against us consume us? No, he fought for us. He fought on our behalf. The sign that he gave us would be to go to the cross and advocate for us to bring that punishment on himself. And so my prayer church is that we, as the body of Christ, learn from and imitate our heavenly father in his perfect and righteous anger.